0: I spoke over you you should say you're very funny quip again
1: oh it was a i said a funny quip oh all right i said um we'll just have to i don't remember what i said <laughs> welcome back Ooh, to check displeased The episode 50 Spectacular, where we are talking about the top-grossing Quebecois film franchise of all time, Les Boys. No, actually, we're talking about the webcomic check, please, and we're talking about strip number 2.14 post three, Last Game, which was originally posted on December 14th, 2015. I am secret, and I think that this is the best installment of Check, Please. So I am excited to talk about it. And I think this is going to be
0: a real treat for our listeners. I'm Tomato. And I think I agree that this is probably the best Check, Please strip of all time in terms of its writing and artistic direction. Although there are other strips
1: that brought me more insane pleasure, I think but it is pretty amazing. Oh, I would agree with that. I think there, there are other strips that have brought me more insane pleasure for sure. And there are also a lot of strips that raise other really interesting, really fraught and like, I don't know, hairy discourses. And I think we're going to have a lot of fun when we get into those. What I mean by best is like, I think in a, in a terms of like critical sense, the highest quality strip in a sort of objective, like how do you write a good comic sense? That's, that's this one post three last game.
0: I think I agree with that. So without further ado, in wordless disappointment, the Samwell hockey team returns to the locker room after losing the last game of the frozen four Biddy noting Jack's conspicuous absence from the room goes looking for him He eventually finds Jack back to the door and huddled on a pallet in a storage room. Jack turns to face Biddy, his eyes full of tears. Biddy sits down beside him and hugs him in a clear parallel to that time
1: when Biddy overheard Jack with his father on the phone. So we said this is the best strip in Shaq Plays, and we will obviously tell you why uh, soon. But I also want to make a note that I think it's not just the best strip Holistically, I think it represents one of the best plot developments in Sheck, Please. And the reason why is because you expect that this team is going to win, and they don't win. You expect this because this is a happy sports comic, and because all of the build-up, especially in the last strip, about like, will they win? Jack really wants this seems to be leading to some kind of emotional catharsis, like in the form of them winning. And there is emotional catharsis, but it's not about the team winning. It's about Jack and Biddy embracing at the end to kind of close out a plot thread that's been developing in their storyline since the beginning of the comic, namely that Jack doesn't want Biddy on the hockey team And Biddy has been trying to sort of get through to him. So they end up in a relationship in a few strips, like not to spoil the comic. But it's not that their story is done, but they've effectively like concluded that part of the kind of antagonistic dynamic they had at the start of the story. This also speaks to some, like, relative comfort with letting the audience sit with a narrative low, with no promise of later resolution. So, like, Jack will never win an NCAA championship. He doesn't get what he wants in that sense, and he just never will, period. And now we know from having read, like, the rest of the comic that Jack's life is not going to follow that pattern. Like we know that he ends up winning the Stanley Cup and getting the guy and everybody loves him and everything works out great for him for the rest of his life, seemingly. But you don't know that at like this time when you're reading this strip. It's realistic and it really helps like ground what is a fanciful romance comic with some like magical or supernatural elements in the real world because, and this is where my like (laughs) sociopathic personality comes through. This happens. Teams lose. Somebody always has to lose. If, if two teams are playing each other, one of them will lose. And sometimes it's you. Sometimes you lose with finality. Like you don't just get to have what you want. Like Jack will never get to have this. He will never get to be on an NCAA winning hockey team. And there's nothing he can do. No amount of money. No amount of like, I don't know, political influence in the sphere of hockey... Nothing about like his own desire to make it happen that can ever possibly bring this to him. It's just done and he doesn't get it. And sometimes in life that just happens. And it's like a really kind of honest and realistic thing that the comic gives you that it doesn't give you very often after this. And at the risk of just sort of like going on and on, uh, I'll let Tomato speak in a minute. I would say that like, I don't know, from a sort of, I don't know, ethical or like humanist perspective, learning how to cope with that kind of disappointment is like a necessary aspect of being human. If you can't figure out how to integrate this kind of loss and like this kind of like denial of satisfaction into your own life, it's either because you're in such a like privileged, rarefied position that you are completely insulated from this kind of feeling. Or it's because there's something like mentally and emotionally wrong with you and the rest of your life is going to be filled with interpersonal problems, which I'm sure Jax will be. Blasphemy. He is
0: clearly going to have the smoothest ride through the rest of his beautiful life because we all know that when people aren't challenged and don't grow, um, as Mgozi herself says, that they actually live a great life. And uh, it's brilliant for them. I think this moment is interesting for a few reasons. I think we'll probably end up talking more about this as we go. But as you mentioned, it's not often that we get anything to kind of cut the sweetness of the comic. And for me, when I read fiction or when I read a piece of media that has like a tonally sweet element to it, when that element is overwhelming, it ceases to be appealing. So moments like this of bitterness or bittersweetness or kind of like loss help undergird the sweetness and and make us look forward to other kinds of catharsis so they do a narrative function emotionally um, as well as kind of just in a balanced narrative way in addition as well to the kind of ethical concerns that secret mentioned that i completely agree with and then i also think this is interesting because this is one of the few times the comic seems to specifically acknowledge jack's mental health as it's tied to hockey like we get the hockey prince strip and that very clearly ties them together we get this strip we get that strip at 112. When he goes behind the loading dock and he's talking with his dad, we get like a bit of a strip there. But for the most part, we don't actually get to see much more of that journey. This is one of the last times we'll kind of get to dive into it. And what's interesting is that it connects comfort and coping with Biddy very specifically, which I personally didn't notice or like didn't really think was only due to Biddy back when I thought this was going to be a different kind of comic. And as Secret already mentioned, like part of the reason I thought it was going to be a different kind of comic is because of this strip. So we'll talk more about that. But I do kind of want to ask, like, can you imagine what would happen if we saw this kind of reaction after the Falconers lost a game or if we, like, ever saw the Falcs lose a game in a way that felt narratively potent? I don't know. This comic loves to repeat things. It loves milestones and kind of, like, theme and variation. This is, like, a way of organizing, I think, that this comic is really interested in. Um, and I think it would have been like a really good opportunity to examine Jack's anxiety and how his relationship with his anxiety has changed. If it does change, which it seems to, given how the rest of the comic rolls out, but we don't really see that journey. So it's like a lost opportunity to repeat the beat again, but in a different context. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Kind of like if we had seen the Phelps lose in a, in an
1: important way? I mean, you want to know what's so interesting is that they don't do very well in year four of the comic. That season, I guess for them it would have been the um, 2016, 2017 season, they don't even make the playoffs. And like, there's a little voiceover from Biddy about like, well, you know, it's a rebuilding year or like something. I don't know, We'll, we'll get to it. But like, the comic gives it like half a line of lip service and then that's it. And it's completely uninvestigated and never examined. And like, you, you sort of understand why, but it's like the comic does everything it can to really like avoid showing these sorts of moments connected with Jack's like NHL hockey career. At the same time, I think we'll talk about this, you know, as we continue, but I really think that based on what happens at the end of year two with them losing the NCAA championship in their last game ever, the Falcons really needed to lose at the end of year three. And then if they were going to win the Stanley Cup, they needed to come back and win it at the end of year four. And I'll talk more about it when we get to them winning the Stanley Cup at the end of year three, which we will sometime. But the reason why is because it needed to be a kind of pendant to this particular comic where you see that Jack's reaction to this sort of circumstance has developed or that he's learned something about how to handle losing or maybe to show how Biddy has taught him something about how to handle losing or, or something like that. He needs to resolve his feelings about losing before he can win. And I'm not saying that like in real life, I believe that in real life, I think none of this matters. Like I I don't think that winning or losing is necessarily like a character building exercise that you need to go through to prove yourself. But narratively, It's like, why give Jack this devastating loss? And then just be like, oh, okay, well, here's the Stanley Cup.
0: The thing is that loss also in the comic and kind of dealing with the emotional instability of losing at hockey or sort of not succeeding in the hockey world is given huge narrative weight, like years one and two, both for Biddy and for Jack, right? We find out about Jack's OD, of course, but also we see Biddy, you know, worried he's going to get kicked off the team, like all of that tension gets built up and built up and built up and then kind of never goes anywhere. Like it's kind of cathartic in this moment, but it kind of never gets really pushed anywhere. The tension just disappears.
1: Yeah, I hadn't really thought about this actually. And it is interesting. I was going to um, maybe mention a little bit later in this episode that we don't actually see any hockey play connected with this particular uh, Frozen Four run. But entirely absent from this entire arc is what Biddy's contribution to it in a hockey sense is. Like the end of year one is about how he's able to help complete a play that allows them to win the game. Here you have no idea what it is that he's doing on the ice. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because you'd think if we were telling a story about Biddy kind of like you know, integrating into the hockey team, you'd want to follow up on that. Like last year, he made the play, but then he got checked and he got a really bad concussion. This year, well, who even knows? We don't even see them playing any of these games. But we'll talk about that more later. I think we have a lot of praise for this particular, this particular plot development, the fact that they end up losing here. I guess what I would say is alongside the fact that, like, in and of itself in its year two context, the fact that they lose is like a bold decision that really works. I think it also sort of like led me to understand Shuck Please in a particular way that turned out to not serve my enjoyment of the comic in the end, because what this showed me was that Shuck Please is interested in telling a certain kind of story and teaching a certain kind of lesson after this particular moment where everything is sort of like rebalanced and you you are kind of stripped emotionally raw along with the characters the comic kind of ceases to do this sort of storytelling actually like almost from this point out for the rest of the comic uh there there is no more like semblance of verisimilitude in terms of like sometimes you win and sometimes you lose Biddy and Jack just continue to win and to get what they want. And I really don't think that this one story beat here is enough to like tonally earn the hyperbolic winning streak that the comic is just on for like the next two years. And it really bothers me. And it's sort of like, well, my understanding of this comic was sort of disserved by this one particular beat's which I took to be more of like an ethical position for the comic than, I don't know, another step on the like Jack and Biddy Kiss progress narrative.
0: I had exactly the same problem. And I suspect we will be talking about this a lot more as we go into year three, because that sequence also contributed to this feeling. A lot of it. I think the argument that the comic makes as a whole, which we have discussed before, is that being morally correct and working hard kind of pays off in- these very concrete material ways, like you get the boy, you get the Stanley Cup, you get the book deal, whatever. This strip complicates the message, but I think the reason that it's dissatisfying, it's the scale of this complication is so small compared to the scale of success that happens afterward that even though this is kind of like a devastating strip in certain ways, there's just no way for even this moment of pain to like at all balance out not just tonally, but in terms of pacing, the, the success that follows. Because you know, one strip about one sad event followed by many strips about like success after success. There's just no tonal or pacing way for it to balance. So again, if you're a reader who doesn't really care about balance, that's fine. If you're a reader who does care about narrative balance, this is probably going to be frustrating for you
1: what i learned from reading this particular strip at this particular point in check please was oh this is a story and a comic and an author that is not afraid to serve unhappiness to its characters but then yeah. actually it is <laughs> so yeah i don't know I, I i feel i feel like i was you know I, this is a word that's going to start coming up a lot i think from here on out but yeah i mean i, I kind of feel like i was gaslit by this comic <laughs> I mean, not
0: just unhappiness, right, but like complex emotional situations where there's not necessarily like one person in the right, one person in the wrong. I do think that one of the things Check, Please tries to do is not to have an antagonist other than Jack at the beginning of year one. And I really like that. Like, I actually think that choosing to write about things which are not antagonistic in a sort of traditional villain way, but which are about the antagonism of circumstance is a really great way to structure a story. And That's what I thought this comic was going to be because of beats like this, where the circumstances, it's not that anyone's in the wrong, it's just painful. And how do you deal with it? And I thought that that was a really appropriate way to deal with also a comic that was about coming out, because as we've talked about before, and we'll talk about again, coming out can be painful and hard and is often hard circumstantially. That's not that there's necessarily one villain, although there can be. Um, So I thought that this beat was going to mirror that. And uh, I was very wrong. And uh, that's it.
1: This one sort of, like, downbeat or sad moment in this final arc of year two is so much more emotionally affecting and, like, I don't know, effective than all of the happiness that follows in years three and four. And I think the reason why is because the trajectory of the comic both up to this point as a whole and throughout second semester of year two has been expanding, 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 expanding. And you're sort of like emotionally along for the ride of everything, I don't know, growing in a sense of anticipation. And then all of a sudden you get to this like precipice where you think you're about to transcend something. And you're just like immediately brought back down and that really works and it's really effective it's like that's what storytelling is in order to like heighten emotions but from this point it's like the rest of the comic is just really flat to me it doesn't feel like a sort of rising and falling action it just feels like this ongoing narrative thud of like happiness kept a pace or whatever and I suppose reading the rest of this, you know, I'll, I'll get to feel out if that sticks with me again. But I don't know. I mean, this is like a, like a haunting, affecting, emotionally wrought comic in a way that the rest of the story in its kind of triumphant, happy narrative doesn't really work for me.
0: Yeah, I'm curious too how that will play out because I remember year three also having that sense of anticipation the the first half of it. And I'm curious to see even knowing what happens after, whether it still feels that way because this, I think, beautiful, bittersweet moment really sets this particular tone that then, of course, the end of this year will play into. And then it's like a sea change. Everything is like vastly different at the start of year three. So I am really curious to see how this as sort of a the metaphor coming to mind is like theater lighting. Like, I don't know, like this is sort of like lighting the path a little bit. I'm curious to see how that plays out now that we know the whole story, because I haven't reread this sequence in a while.
1: Yeah, so I do think you're right that um, the feeling that I had reading year three was also this sense of expansive anticipation of like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But the thing is, like, I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop as it does in this strip here. And it doesn't.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: The shoe stays on the foot. And you did not talk.
0: No, I like the things you say. Speaking of, you have some beautiful insights about the way that this comic works visually. So I would love to hear them, please.
1: Okay. So yeah, I do think that it's worth kind of breaking down how this particular strip works in a sort of like visual analysis sense. So overall, the first two thirds of this particular strip are like smaller squarish panels. And Ngozi does point that out in the blog post. But then at the moment when Jack and Biddy connect to each other, the panels open up into these like expansive full screen views. And the way that the last four panels of this comic, these like widescreen final four panels look, are a wide shot, a close into Biddy, a close into Jack, and then another wide shot. So you see this like, visual echoing happening at the end of the comic to create a sense of like balance and emotional connection and that final third of the comic is in conversation with the first two thirds of the comic where this like emotional connection isn't happening because it's very like beat by beat going through I don't know what happens after they lose that game It's also true that over the course of this particular strip, the lighting is really interesting. You get this like very full bright lighting within the changing room where the team is filing in. And then that lighting dims over the strip until you get to the low lighting of the loading bay at the very end. So it's kind of like the lights are going off or you're getting more and more intimate and less exposed. And then the same thing happens with color saturation where these strips, like these panels start out really vibrant. And then that vibrancy kind of like drains out of the strip over the course of it until at the very end, Jack and Biddy who are colorful are just in this like gray void, even with like one overhead light kind of framing them almost religiously in in the very last shot. It's this, sort of move from like a brightly lit, very visually vibrant and almost like busy and cluttered scene that goes to something that is like very still, very quiet, very cool. And just like, I don't know, super subdued. It's really smart. And it like helps kind of like, I don't know, file the viewers or the readers emotions along with what's happening in the story. So here's what we actually get. We start with a view of the locker room from within Jack's stall. And you know, it's within his stall because he's got his yellow shoes and his camera, his uh, DSLR, I presume is what he shoots with kind of like open in his camera bag. Then in the very next panel, panel two, we see that Dex has thrown his, ha- his helmet into the empty room to like disrupt it, to kind of like interrupt the stillness of that locker room. And also kind of like to break the tension of it. And you know that it's Dex who throws it because he's the one who's not wearing his helmet as they file in in panel three. And as they're filing in, you can see that Nursey puts his hand on Dex's back to comfort him, like right after he shucks off his helmet. And you know that it's Nursey putting his hand to his back, first of all, because the previous panel has established that that's where Nursey's standing, but also because you can see like the eight on his Jersey and Nursey is number 28. I don't know how you'd know that, but it, it happens to be true. So you also get a little bit of like a bookend to the Dex and Nursey tension here, which never ends, by the way, throughout the comic. It's continued as like a running gag. But if you look at just like year two in and of itself, you get a little bit of like, you know, an answer to the question of can these guys learn to like be teammates? And the answer is presumably yes. Yes, they can. Yes, they have. So it's a nice subtle way to do that then Biddy is instinctively looking behind for Jack. And you know that it's Jack he's looking for, like you just know that while he's entering the locker room and while he's changing. And this is also like following up on a story that's been told throughout this year and also the previous year of the comic that Biddy is really concerned with and absorbed in Jack's emotional well-being. We've also had all this stuff in the, I don't know, previous comics about how jack really wants to win and you get the sense that like he and biddy have this special bond because biddy is really thinking about how he really wanted to win and he must be really upset and notices that he's not there and he goes to find jack as lardo is conferring with one of the coaches i don't know which one do you know which one that is i don't worry i guess he's got some big stupid biddy eyes i tell you what so Bay somehow just, like, knows how to trace Jack's steps. And it's not clear to me from this particular comic if it's that he knows that Jack is in the loading bays because he saw Jack in the loading bay before, like, at the start of year one. Or if he just has, like, a sense of where to find Jack because they're metaphysically connected. But he, he finds... Jack's jersey while he's out there searching for him you said basically this this is like a psychic love connection
0: oh yeah well I mean I was being facetious but also I do think we're supposed to get from this that Biddy and Jack have some special connection to each other and that Biddy through his intuition and his caretaking instincts like just knows where to find Jack and knows exactly what he needs so I think that this is a continuation that this little shit is just what Jack needs. Like this is kind of continuing that trend.
1: Yeah. So then I guess Biddy also has a hint in the form of the mats that are on the ground. Those mats are on the ground because they're laid out for skaters to walk on. Because if you walk with a, with a hockey skate on concrete or just like solid ground, you'll damage your blades. So, I guess Biddy sort of has to reason that like Jack must have gone where the mats would lead him, otherwise he would have taken off his hockey skates at some point. And then the other interesting detail in this little panel as as Biddy's Biddy's running along the hockey maps is that the confetti that is being swept up is blue and white, and you see in the blog post header that the other team's colors are blue and white, so the The winners, a.k.a. not Samwell, are some kind of blue and white colored team. Ergo, it's like the confetti celebrating the other team is blue and white as well. I guess that means they also had red and white confetti but whatever. Anyway, B.D. notices that Jack has pulled off his jersey and so he kind of like follows the clues. Jack's jersey also has blue and white confetti on it. And this is symbolism and it's like pretty, pretty densely packed symbolism. So the different things going on here are, number one, Jack is no longer a member of the team and the C on his jersey is prominently displayed. He's no longer their captain. So like he's physically shed his jersey to symbolize that he's no longer a member of the hockey team. Then there's also the fact that because there's Consetti, that blue and white Consetti clinging to the jersey, he's had to like take the jersey off because he doesn't want this evidence of his loss clinging to him. But then also blue and white are the Falconers colors. So there's like symbolic foreshadowing in this as well. And the thing is like, I think you either have to have back read after meeting the Falconers in year three and seen this to pick up on it, or you would have had to have noticed in the previous strip that the colors blue and white are in that Falconers folder. That was part of that panoramic array of ephemera in that panel that we broke down last episode. I did go back and look for whether or not any extras that would have indicated what the Falconer's colors were would have been posted at this point. And the thing is, like, there's so much deleting and, like, so many different platforms that extras have appeared on that it's possible that it just would have been something that people would have seen but that I can't find evidence for looking back from 2021. But as far as I'm aware, yeah, you would have had to have paid really close attention or be rereading the strip from the future. Nevertheless, it is true, and I think it's deliberate. Anyway, Biddy sees Jack hunched over in his hockey pads. And this is also really interesting because... Technically, he's still wearing the protective part of the getup, like the pads, but he looks so vulnerable and he looks like way more underdressed and exposed than Biddy does. And Biddy's actually just in like hockey underwear, like Biddy's wearing the compression garments that are under his pads and Jack is wearing his pads, but for some reason, Jack just looks so like exposed and just like unguarded. And I think part of that is that without the jersey and the skates, Jack is just really hard to idea as like a hockey player. But it's also almost like he's exposed his skeleton. He just looks like unbalanced and incomplete without that jersey on. And I'm really like fixated on that. It just looks so like wrong and weird and like awkward.
0: Yeah. And I, as we were kind of preparing for this episode, I remember that we'd spent like half an hour talking about how Biddy hadn't gotten undressed properly from his hockey gear in 112, which is much more effective in this case, I think, because it's serving a more obvious narrative purpose. But there's something really interesting in that parallel, like both in being vulnerable and underdressed, but also Jack still has his pads on. So he hasn't actually shed the identity of hockey player exactly, even though he also can't keep on the Samwell jersey. And even though he is trying to protect himself via the pads, like he's clearly unable to. So he's still kind of stuck in the moment of the game, even though he can no longer be part of the Samwell men's hockey team, he also can't shed the like weight of the pads and like the weight of the game. So he's kind of just stuck in this limbo between them. And I think that's kind of amazing. And I think that contributes to the feeling of his vulnerability in the moment.
1: Yeah, we did talk a lot, actually, about how in 112, Biddy is... It's after he and Jack and his mom and Bob Zimmerman have had this, like, awkward hallway conversation. Jack says, I'm going to go shower. And Biddy... I guess, doesn't. And then Biddy is still in his hockey underwear and Jack has showered and, like, put his suit back on. And then they have this, like, weird exchange where, yeah, Jack is like it was a lucky shot and Biddy is just, like, in his hockey gear and, and Jack is in his game day suits. So it's this interesting reversal where sort of, like, something different is happening. I love that interpretation that it's like Jack is still a hockey player he's just relatively like unaffiliated with a particular team he's like a hockey player in search of a home or something
0: a stateless hockey player
1: yeah but here it's that biddy has like started changing and jack hasn't so biddy is taking off his garments because he's like done with the game jack took his jersey off dramatically because he's gay
0: I agree and also I think before I mentioned 112 when I actually meant 110 because that is the strip where Jack and Biddy have their moment in behind a loading dock
1: Okay, 110, whatever. Listen, I whatever strip you say, I'm just like, yeah, it makes sense, cool. Oh, no, no,
0: 112 is right for the lucky shot. That's the right one. 110 is the one I mentioned before. This doesn't matter. Anyway, yeah, Jack, <laughs> is, dramatic and, Jack is dramatic and gay and that's why we love him, correct? Yes.
1: No, listen, I, I said that like, jokingly or facetiously but i i really mean it it's like something that i'm rediscovering and rereading check please is that jack has this like weird like melodramatic flair to like what he says and what he does that actually feels just like really gay or like it's just like a really gay sensibility it's just like ah, oh, i lost the hockey game and he like tears his jersey off and like goes to cry by himself it's like he knows he's in like a gay story he, I mean, he probably, yeah, I mean, literally he does, like, that's his life. But I'm, I'm being completely serious, like, I'm not even remotely joking. I think that there's a lot of shit in this comic that implies that he's basically just not affiliated with any sort of sexual identity. He just has sex with Biddy and also is a hockey player but yeah i don't know there's something just really gay about like a gesture of just like Ugh! and like taking your taking your jersey off and flinging it aside although it doesn't even look like he flung it it looks like he took it off and then neatly arranged it over like something <laughs> taking it off and like neatly setting it aside so that it was legible and identifiable to all
0: that's the part of him that's been trained by hockey it's the heteronormativity inside of him like bursting out and being like you can't be too gay jack you know that's also what his i only have like horrible things about authority figures in child jack's life being like you can't be too gay son or whatever so i'll just stop here but
1: Actually, I think you can like, interpret him like neatly arranging the churches so that like the C is highly legible is, is actually itself gay, <laughs> where he's just like, everybody must be able to interpret my gesture. And it's just like,
0: oh, I take it back. I take it back. You're
1: right. But no, I, I think I said that he did something really gay in a previous strip as well. And I can't remember what it was.
0: I don't remember, but the moment that's coming to mind is storming out after the mean- slash realistic sportscasters were talking about him but I don't remember if that's what it was oh yeah that was
1: pretty gay I think we'll have to investigate this further time to re-listen to all 49 episodes before this one to figure it out yeah guys first person who can who can send us an ask with whatever it was that I said recently about Jack being gay I'll buy you a burrito In honor of the one that Jack left behind when we stormed out of uh, the restaurant. I really mean it. I'll send you like an $8 Chipotle gift card or whatever. Seriously, let me know. If
0: I find it, do I also get the $8 Chipotle gift card?
1: Yeah, why not? Oh, thanks. Oh yeah, you're welcome. Uh, Anyway, point being, Jack turns around to see that Biddy is standing there. So either Biddy has said something or Jack just like intuits that Biddy is standing there and he is... Crying. And this is one of my favorite moments in Check Please when Jack turns with his eyes full of tears because he's not just sitting there in a slump feeling sorry for himself. He's crying. His eyes are red. He's been crying for a while. Like, nothing pleases me more than just like a big, sad man crying.
0: I'm sorry to be blasphemous by briefly bringing in another fandom on this, our most hallowed episode yet. However, this is one of the major appeals of Supernatural for me. Okay, thank you. Please continue.
1: Did I ask, like, who who cries in Supernatural, or? The gay older brother.
0: You know, every couple seasons, he's, like, overwhelmed by feelings, and he cries beautiful, perfect tears. It's really good.
1: My cat cries every single day. Every single day. I get up in the morning, and I'm like, I'm going to sit in bed for as long as I want to, because life is hell. And I just start like writing emails and that or whatever. And then my cat is just like crying outside my door. And then I let him inside the room thinking that I'm just going to like get work done. And then as soon as he's inside the room, he just starts being a little asshole. So then I put him outside the room and he continues crying. And this is my entire life.
0: He's a little sad man though, you know? So it's, it's, it's slightly different. The appeal is slightly different.
1: But it's just like, why is he sad? Why is he sad, tomato? Because
0: he wants to be there making your life full of havoc and and mayhem. So then
1: seeing Jack crying, Biddy has this little like heart clenching. Oh no, he's crying moment. Like, You would if you saw a boy you liked crying. And I actually think this is one of a minority of moments in which Biddy's giant black hole eyes actually really serve his expression because yeah, it's like he's taking it in. He's wide-eyed. This is like one scene that he would react to by having big eyes like ah. Also I think that the uh, sort of fullness of his hair, which has grown out at this point, kind of balances the size of his hair out and makes him look less like a buggy child
0: he's making a face in this moment which is the face I picture anytime I feel my very favorite feeling to feel from a piece of fiction which is stricken he looks stricken
1: Well, the thing is they both do and you want to know what you have brought that particular word up a couple times on this podcast already. And so I had that work in mind as I was making notes on this trip, actually very good. So yeah, then Biddy comes over and he sits down next to Jack and he embraces Jack and he also cries and then Jack allows this closeness, but he doesn't exactly reciprocate. So if you can sort of read their posture Biddy is leaning over and into him and hugging him with his head on Jack's shoulder but Jack's posture remains closed off and he's not like returning the gesture so he's allowing this he's tolerating it he's accepting it he's open to it but he can't give it back to Biddy at least not yet and the first time we talked about Jack you know being being sad and having this particular posture in fact this like exact posture in a loading bay we talked about the lyrics to halo and how there's this whole thing about jack being open to biddy and like you know the the walls he built against biddy's toxic masculinity destroying i don't know emotional realness come tumbling down etc so this is like another moment in that arc where He's having a moment of emotional vulnerability because he's allowing Biddy to like share in it because Biddy's like done this work, I guess, to kind of like break Jack's Walls down. And then Jack is in pads and Biddy is not in pads. So here we have kind of like an interesting reversal of the way that they're dressed where Jack is still kind of guarded, whereas Biddy is completely open. And this does echo what happens in that lucky shot moment. It's really clever, I think, how the same kind of like state of dress is used to sort of communicate two wholly different readings of like where these two guys are emotionally. I, I just think that's well done. And then I guess the only other thing that I have to observe about this particular panel is that Biddy is small and Jack is a large man. And you know what, at this point, it just is what it is. But every time it comes up, I will note it.
0: He is so small here especially because Jack is not reciprocating the hugs. It's like not like most hugs I've seen in real life or participated in in real life. Like if I'm going to hug someone, which I don't do very lightly or very often, I will expect them to hug back. And if they don't, I'm like, why am I wasting the energy and hugging you anyway? That's like a me problem. But the way that Biddy is sort of hugging Jack here makes him look like he's propped up next to him like a little doll with little Velcro hands that are like hanging around Jack's neck. And I find it so weird. And I remember thinking it was weird even back before I was in the fandom in any fanfic or you know transformative work kind of sense. It was just when I was like, well, I don't know, like I like this silly comic. And even then I was like, huh, that's kind of a weird way to portray them. I I don't know. I I guess I don't have that much more to add about it either that we haven't already covered, but I just feel like it's very evident here in a way that is not romantic to me.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, this is one of about 1,500 different moments in Check, Please, where obviously what you're supposed to be thinking is like that the bone and I see this particular image and it just doesn't feel like two people who are on the same page sexually although i do think it's quite implied in this particular image that yes jack will at some point wear bondage gear yeah obviously he'll cry too that's part of the whole deal well okay so the next thing i wrote was what is fucking wrong with jack zimmerman and um the yeah. answer I is what
0: that's not technically the next thing you wrote if we don't have to share your, your fanfic that you wrote in our in ours, but I like it. You,
1: you can share what I write these things like in the outline to amuse you. But I mean,
0: you can share them. I don't care. I would like to share this one. Okay. <clears throat> Jack asked for a doll for his birthday when he was turning seven. And his mom was like, ugh, really? And didn't get it for him. So his entire relationship with Biddy is just striving to capture that, which he never had. He wanted one of those ones you could feed a bottle and it looked like the bottle was emptying out fucking baby alive and indeed I think fucking baby alive is the tagline of Jack and Biddy's entire relationship so there you
1: go oh no I'm sorry like which one of them is the baby and which one is alive
0: it's really hard I think we know that I think it's very clear which one's the baby and which one's alive come on
1: I think it really depends on how you define baby and how you define alive Well, I personally think that Jack is baby-coded and
0: Biddy is much more alive-coded,
1: you know? But then Biddy is very small, so sometimes it's kind of like, well, he could be baby and Jack could be alive.
0: I think maybe they, like, role-play that Biddy is baby and Jack is alive, but I think we know which one of them is really alive in this circumstance, and I just don't think it's Jack. I don't know what to say.
1: Well, between the two of them, which one of them looks like they probably are on the precipice of lactating, you tell me.
0: I think we all know the answer there, given whose tits we've discussed on this podcast before. All right. Anyway, let's <laughs> let's keep
1: going. Anyway, uh, so Jack Zimmerman is a mentally ill homosexual drug addict. And um, I just like to bring that into our podcast as many times as possible. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's like, to a certain extent, redundant to me to interrogate this moment too much. But... I guess the way it wants you to read it effectively is that it's like he's brimming with emotion, but because of his conditioning, he's unable to get his feelings out in any kind of normal sense. I guess it's worth sort of thinking about what I have called the awful themes, messages, and and lessons of this bad comic. And when I say bad comic, I mean like Jack Plays as a whole. I started thinking about Shitty's challenging Jack in the previous comic where he's like surprise me and don't go into the NHL and it's like yeah okay so feeling so bad that you have to strip all of your clothes off and go cry alone in a loading bay is kind of like a good reason not to go into the NHL like for something so fucking low stakes like winning a hockey game even the championship hockey game is so completely irrelevant to most people's actual lived experiences that the fact that like it weighs this heavily on jack speaks to something fucked up here and yes i realize that like he's just sitting in a loading bay by himself quietly crying it's not like he's gone on a murderous rampage but versus the rest of his behavior and his typical demeanor he's clearly impacted by this And what I think is damaging and what I think is like fucked up about the idea of Jack going into hockey is that he's going to have to maintain this performance forever of occluding how he actually feels about any number of things just to be like a hockey robot who doesn't cry or appear to have any particular feelings or let other men touch him intimately If you contrast his reaction to the rest of the hockey team, they are all basically being like pretty stoic. Even Biddy, who later in the comic we'll see, cries more than Mary Magdalene, is just kind of like bearing this experience without totally breaking down. I don't think you're for Biddy would do that but at least in this point it's like everybody else is just kind of like swallowing back their sadness and going on with life but jack is just like erupting with feelings in a way that are so is like so extreme and so like socially unacceptable that he has to go hide from everybody i also would maybe contrast it to dex who is the other person who sort of acts out but he acts out in a way that's like angry and violent which is kind of like a more like mask-coded way of reacting to something. Not that it's not gay necessarily, but just that it's like, I don't know, more stealth. It's more stealth to like rip your helmet off and shuck it across the room than it is to like go cry alone.
0: I mean, I think we can see both Jack and Dex rip something off and throw it somewhere, but they're different items and, and so it kind of... Okay, so now it's confirmed that Dex is also gay because he too is enacting a melodramatic. Uh, So Holster, we've got Holster confirmed, we've got Dex confirmed, Jack's getting there.
1: But it's like, the point is Jack, like Dex is able to perform- Yes. Specific emotion in this specific way in front of other people. Whereas what Jack is doing, which is crying and feeling bad for himself is something he has to conceal from everybody. And he's not going to be able to do this in the NHL is the thing, because it's like there's going to be a fucking um, press corps that's going to want to get up in his face. And we will see that in the comic. And he's not going to be able to, like, disappear by himself for a quiet moment of emotional catharsis his life is going to be very regulated and he's going to have to go straight back to the locker room and then like get on the bus with the other guys or like, you know, go do a presser or something. So he's entering into an arena where it's like, he's not going to go to sustain this. That's the thing. It's like this question about the meaning of Jack going into the NHL is that he's sort of knowingly agreeing to suppress Aspects of himself that include, you know, not just the fact that he wants to role play baby alive with a twink, but like the fact that he has feelings in a way that's like uncomfortable and not really okay for like a male coded hockey player.
0: It's like he enters the NHL and just because we don't actually see much of his coping as necessary in the NHL. It's like he either just magically gains coping skills or Biddy's wonderful anti-toxic masculinity somehow like outweighs all of the bad possible things that the NHL could enforce on Jack or whatever. And instead, he's just I mean, really what it seems like is he's just suppressing it all through application of, you know, drugs. But it seems instead as though he's just no longer dealing with this sensation without any way of telling us how he learned it. Except, I guess, maybe the implication that, like, Biddy taught him. But we never see it. I don't know.
1: Well, that's possible, and I think it's implied, and I think we're supposed to just, like, presume that that's what happened. But, I mean, realistically, like, pragmatically speaking, it also happens to be the case that, like, nothing this bad ever happens to him for the rest of the comic. Like, he's never in a position to feel this way ever again, because basically everything is just, like... He, he succeeds. He's never pressed into a situation where he has to struggle with this. He just wins. So like you never get the opportunity to see what he's going to do or if he's learned anything or if he's developed in any way. So a lot of this to me suggests maybe that the story of this comic was changed again I'm not saying this isn't a conspiracy theory. Like, I really don't think you're ever going to get anybody, let alone Ngozi on the record, saying, yeah, this comic was supposed to cover blank, but then the decision was made to take it in a different direction. That's not going to happen. So to a certain extent, this is just kind of like conspiracy theory thinking. But part of what I think we're trying to do with this podcast is point out what the narrative seems to be setting up versus what the narrative ends up actually doing. And I feel like this particular moment of loss here implies a trajectory that just doesn't materialize. And again, in dialogue with other things, Suggests that, like, perhaps some revisions were made, and this particular story beat would have made sense or been part of a different narrative had the comic not been changed at some point.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think we can see that both in terms of the lack of theme and variation that is usually used for other important beats in the comic as already discussed. And I also think tonally, this is way more bittersweet than like year four, for example, would suggest the rest of the comic to be. And I think that a lot of year two is actually like more bittersweet than the end of the comic would suggest, even though I wouldn't say it like entered really exciting territory for me until around this strip. Jack is a bit melodramatic, I agree, in kind of the best way. But the bittersweetness here is not a melodramatic sweetness, right? It's like a very grounded... Sadness, which is not tragic, it's just frustrating and sad. Whereas the hyperbolic sweetness of the latter two years of the comic kind of like would demand tragedy rather than grounded bittersweetness, if that makes sense, if there were going to be something to balance it. So they're kind of operating on two different registers. This is operating on romance with a twist of reality through it, and those other years are operating kind of like in some other completely different fantasy land. So I think. We know that Ngozi can plant narrative seeds and kind of let them bloom. We see that with Parse. So it would make sense to me that this is a narrative seed that then like never quite blooms because that's a strategy we saw her using throughout all of year two. So it would make sense for this to be one as well. If that, if I'm doing like sort of conspiracy theory, you know, detectiving, that's my take on that.
1: And I mean, the question that was set up in the previous strip was is the team Spark? in combination with Jack's personal desire, enough? And the answer that this strip seems to satisfy is no. No, it's not enough. They lose. But then you have to ask, or at least the question is begged, if that philosophy carries throughout the rest of the comic. Are we meant to believe when we're reading the end of year three and all of year four that... All of this winning is happening because of some like, I don't know, hockey prowess or because this is the best hockey team and they have strategized to the point where they're able to win the Stanley Cup slash, you know, come back and win the NCAA championship. Or are characters given things or does winning happen merely to satisfy a sort of like moral superiority and desire? And having read those parts of the comic more recently, my feeling is that the work is not really done to establish that this is a very good hockey team. I think Biddy is given victories or Jack is given victories almost as like a reward for personal behavior. And then that makes this kind of like an odd contrast to the end of year one, where the reason why they win the game that they win at the end of year one is because they play the hockey game well. Like, very clearly, it's explained in an artful, non-technical way that makes sense within the comic that the reason why they win is because Jack devised a hockey play that made sense. And Biddy was able, through the teaching that Jack had given him in the first year of the comic to follow through on it. And then the push and pull there is that, yes, they won that hockey game, but ultimately Biddy paid like a very dear price for it and they didn't win the championship anyhow. And like we broke that down a lot. It just stands in contrast to this moment and actually the rest of the comic where it's like, what happens in the hockey game in year two is like not even discussed like it's not even relevant it's like there's no understanding of why they win or don't win other than that like the narrative doesn't want to give it to them at that particular moment
0: I'm really curious what the answer to the question like is this enough gonna look like throughout year three because I think that that might actually be the question to ask to start looking at when I think the trajectory of the comic changed Again, conspiracy theory style, but I think it's a really useful question that might be a good kind of litmus test for figuring out when the tone of the
1: comic shifted. So then we have this like weird way that this comic does storytelling. The lack of dialogue supports the theory that a lot of the writing in this comic just like doesn't need to be there. You get as much about Biddy's interior thought process and his worldview in this particular comic, which has no dialogue whatsoever, as you do from, like, the blogs that he gives at the beginning of every single strip. So, again, sometimes those blogs do work, especially when they're giving us, like, a counter-narrative to what we actually see happening. But then so many times it's just, like, an extra panel with these sort of do nothing musings that the audience doesn't really need. And I think it's worth noting here that like within this particular strip, the economy of panels is very tight and very sparing. You get new information every single panel and every single image builds upon the last one while logically leading to the next one. If you removed any one panel here, you would lose something that contributes meaningfully to the overall story. But the thing that's so striking about this particular strip is that Check, Please doesn't usually manage to accomplish that. Like, this is so much tighter than this comic ends up being, especially later on. And I think for me, this particular strip is like a really effective example of Ngozi's fill-in-the-blank approach to storytelling. It really works here to the story's advantage. Like, they lost. And you go from all of this shit in the previous comment about being in the moment to a moment that they wish they didn't have to be in. And it makes sense that you don't actually see the hockey game because I don't know the kind of jolt into reality or like the jolt out of like a sports narrative into the sort of like reality of aftermath is effective And the reader is just able to kind of like fill that blank in. There's not a lot of like, well, why don't we see that happening? It's like, it doesn't matter if you saw it happening here. Like you can imagine kind of what transpired and what transpired is that they played like a really like hard fought hockey game that they just didn't win because they weren't as good. Something really odd here that I think is worth discussing as many times as it comes up is that there's no like opponent or antagonist. And I think a really good question is like, who are they beating? Or who are they not being? Like, who is this other blue and white team? Like, they're not even named. And to a certain extent, this is kind of like a subversion or a sublimation of like every other sports story, where the other team is usually not as sketched out, but is somebody. Like, you know, they're Adams County or whoever. You know, they're like another hockey team that has in and of itself a kind of contrasted character. And I think you can make the argument both that this strategy works and that it doesn't work. The argument that this works is that the opponent is not the other team, but rather it's Jack against himself or hockey's expectations for him. Or maybe it's Biddy's ongoing project of getting through to him or toxic masculinity or something like that. So it's not really about the other hockey team. It's about everything else, all these like systemic conditions. And I think it's also the case that like, because they're just losing, they could have lost to anyone and it wouldn't really have changed the story. Whereas if they were beating somebody, it would be meaningful that they were beating some specific team with some specific disposition that you could read meaning into the message of like that particular victory. So I think maybe this works here, but by the time you get to the actual NHL, it's doesn't. And also when you get to Biddy's team victory in are four, it kind of doesn't. Because it's like, well, what is it about the Seattle Schooners that makes it relevant that the Providence Falconers win the Stanley Cup against them? And the answer is, we don't know. Like, we don't know anything about the Seattle Schooners. They're just like, you know, a, a ship logo. So to a certain extent, the fact that you don't see the opponent here kind of works because it's not that kind of situation. They're just losing. At the same time, I don't know. I do feel like, okay, but like, who are they beating? Like, why do we care that they won or lost? If we have no idea who it is, who they're playing, like, what does it mean to win or not win against nobody? Right? Like, why is this not a question that the comic seeks to satisfy an answer to? What is the larger meaning of this loss if we can't frame it against some sort of opponent who presumably was the equal to and the better of, in some sense, Samuel Mentahi? These are like the circling the drain kind of questions that I ask myself about this particular comic, meaning this particular strip.
0: I think it does work. Ultimately, like, I think you can ask all the questions about why it doesn't work. But I think for me, the reason it really works is that this moment is a transition between being primarily a sports narrative to a primarily romance narrative with hockey play in the background. And I think the hugging panel is like the moment of transition, right? Because it's different from the last time we saw Biddy Comforting Jack on a loading dock sort of like by force (laughs) and here jack seems to be more accepting of that comforting so i think for me the reason that this works and the reason that we kind of don't need the opponent or the other team is because this strip at least is not operating in a sports narrative where those questions would be relevant if that kind of makes sense i do think of course that we still get sports narrative it's not that it totally disappears and i think that your point about the nhl and about Biddy's year for success is important because those things are sports narratives. And that's why the lack of kind of specificity is not effective. But I think in this particular moment, it is a romance narrative and therefore it kind of doesn't matter. It's like the faceless opponent, who cares? We care that Jack's sad. That's the thing that we want to focus on in a real way. So I also think that one of the reasons this works is because Jack's expectations of himself and the uncertainty of the future has so recently been highlighted. So this moment really punctures that sense of growth that you mentioned before, the kind of expansion. And also it calls to mind the uncertainty of the future. We don't know if Jack's ever going to win the Stanley Cup at this point, you know? So it's like, this could be like a, a defining loss and that the loss is more important than the game, if that makes sense in this particular case. But it doesn't work equally in all circumstances. And that I think is in part, at least because of genre.
1: I think to a certain extent... It is a little bit problematic that we never really get a real opponent. Not because this comic needs more characters, like certainly it does not. But rather, if one of the points you want to make is that people aren't villains, but the system is a problem, then humanizing the other team and showing that they're not morally superior, or inferior, just other people who are also struggling within the system would really be a boon to the point this comic is seemingly making. And on that note, all I have to say is, uh, boy, it's really too bad this comic didn't end up doing more with Kent Parson because mm-hmm. what a great opposing hockey player you have there to make that point with, oh, well.
0: Again, narrative seeds that seem to have been planted to me back when I read this comic and uh, maybe weren't.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, so this is what happens to Jackson Zimmerman when he's losing to nobody. What happens when he loses to somebody that he actually has feelings about and is invested in on some level? that's like a really interesting caricature and that could be really illustrative of like who he is and like what his values are. And it just like doesn't materialize. And I also think, you know, uh, we'll get into this, but I deeply suspect, or at least I feel that it would have been better if, again, the Falconers had lost in year three and then won the Stanley Cup in year four. With a corollary that, it would have made a lot of sense if they had lost to the Aces, in year three and then had a rematch in year four where they do win because that would have allowed the point to be made that it's not so much the winning or losing that is important or rather winning or losing is nice, but the character of the people involved in the actual game is what's really at stake. Like that would have been the easiest way to demonstrate that. And I always felt maybe that was what this comic was trying to express, but apparently it's not.
0: Here here, that is also how I feel.
1: I mean, I I really I really just thought like that was what was going to happen. Like until until the Falconers won the Stanley Cup at the end of year 3, I I really thought that was what this story was supposed to be because how do you read the strip and not just come away with like Oh, the lesson Jack has to learn is that winning doesn't matter. He has to be happy just with like hockey for hockey's sake and not hockey for winning's sake. And more to the point, you know, he needs to be happy enough with himself that if he loses hockey or like loses at hockey, maybe I should say it's not going to destroy him. And I guess you can make the argument in the rest of year two that, well, it doesn't destroy him. He goes on to like graduate college and he gets the guy and so on and so forth. But it's also kind of a mixed message because he never seems to like internalize what hap- what happens here.
0: I think It does a disservice to what's really great about the comic and the things that it does really well to assume that this strip isn't here for any reason. And that's what that reading kind of demands, right? Like that it isn't trying to say something. And I think when you look at the trajectory Jack has over year two, from Kent Parson showing up to this moment, and then of course the end, his trajectory throughout the course of this year is of re-encountering old and potentially harmful patterns. I'm not saying anything about Ken Parson, I'm just saying like Jack's patterns, right? And starting to try to think about them in new ways. That's how I read part of his trajectory this year. And to ignore that is to do a disservice to what's really like great about it, I think.
1: Well, the year isn't quite over, so we have more to chew on. But in terms of the ostensible plot of the comic, which is to say it's about hockey, yeah, that's over. They lost. That's it. The end.
0: And I too have nothing more to say. Like Jack, I just have to go cry.
1: Oh, don't go cry. But like, well, actually, let me, let me reframe that. Don't go cry because next time we're going to read a really exciting strip called Jack's Tips. No number.
0: I don't remember what happens in this strip. So I'm very excited. Wait, you don't remember? I remember the grand gist of things, but I don't really remember any of the details because it's been a long time since I've looked at it.
1: Oh boy. Well, I think you're in for a real treat, which is finding out there are a few details, few details forthcoming. That's what I like. But, um, I think we'll maybe be able to use this opportunity to talk a little bit more about Jack's character or something, but we have a week to figure it out. So, you know, just fuck around and find out, I guess. I guess we'll see you back here for Jack Displeased number 51. The big five one, as they say. Jack Stibbs. I have been secret, and you can find me on Tumblr at Camilliar, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or S-K-R-T-O-M-G, or on AO3, I'm Familiar.
0: And I'm Tomato, and you can find me at tomato underscore greens on AO3 or tomato rights dot, Tumblr dot com. And you can find our podcast on... Check com or on Podbean or on
1: Spotify. Yeah, that's it. Those are the only places you can find it. So don't go looking anywhere else because it's not there. Maybe and someday, as I've been saying for 50 episodes now. 50 episodes. It's a lot of episodes. That's a lot of podcasts, dude. I know.
0: I'm pretty proud of us. This is like at least a hundred hours of podcast. Definitely more, I think, but at least. And it's so good too. Genius. Honestly, every time it's full of vim and vigor and brilliant ideas, it's great. Well, I don't know about vim,
1: but uh,
0: I think I provide plenty of vim. Okay,
1: I don't want to be too complimentary to our own podcast, so I won't be. You know, it's uh, it's we're recording this on the 3rd of January 2021, and oh, a certain number of things have happened this year, and uh. Yes, I know it's the third day of the year. And um, I don't know, when we started this podcast, it's not that I wasn't serious about like doing the whole comic. Like obviously I was, like I, I meant to, but it was so difficult to think ahead to like what would be happening even a uh, months down the road, let alone two-thirds of a year down the road. and a lot of crazy shit has gone down. but I really do have to say that this has been like a very satisfying experience that has really, I don't know, enriched that shitty eight month period of my life. So thanks, thanks for being here for 50 episodes. And I'm excited about the next 50 because I'm sure they'll just keep getting better as does the comic check, please.
0: I cannot express to you how fucking crazy miserable the last month has been. And not to mention the many months before, but the the last month, guys, it's been a real doozy. And I'm just very grateful to get to talk about Jack's butt with you and that anybody wants to listen to us talk about it. You know, it's like, what a great pleasure and weird, wonderful highlight of fucking a pretty bad period <laughs> for many reasons. So, yeah, thanks, everybody. Can't wait for uh, the end of year two and then into year three and then year four. Like, holy shit.
1: I'm, I'm seriously excited. Like, there are some really good strips in year one, but I spent most of it just being like, Ugh, when are we going to get to the juicy, juicy nonsense? and we're starting to get into it, so.
0: I mean, from here on out, I feel like, yeah, there's gonna be a few things that I don't get totally wrapped up in, but it's pretty much just like lots of bangers, whether they're good bangers or bad
1: bangers, you know? Yeah, and I think I really have, I think I really have kind of discovered like a whole new element to Jack Zimmerman's gay aesthetic. Yes, he has big sub tits, like we all know that. (laughs) But he's also just like a melodramatic Jersey removing queen (laughs) and we better end this podcast really soon or i'm gonna start saying a lot more creepy exploitative things about this fake man save those for me later we're not recording
0: anyway have a good night everybody i hope you have enjoyed our 50th episode as much as i have because honestly it's been the highlight of the last week and don't get covid it is horrible and now i have what one of my friends called sleepy bitch syndrome which i do think is a very funny name but unfortunately it's horrendous so Please be safe. If you can do any last minute phone banking. Oh, wait, this is going to come out after the election. Never mind.
1: Well, I did some today. I did some today. Literally zero people picked up the phone who were the correct person I was trying to call.
0: This is really sentimental. But yeah, this has been a highlight of a fucking horrible year. So I love you guys in the way that you love people you don't know through the parasocial relationship of the internet.
1: All right. Well, we'll be back here next time where we talk about other people who love each other in the form of jack and chatter exchanging dibs you know and also seminal food
0: um bye <laughs>
1: bye Displeased is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahingen.
0: That was very legit.